If you have a Bible, would you open up with me to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1 is um, where we are today. If you're new or you're visiting with us, welcome. If you're joining us online, welcome as well. We're, uh, we're in a series that we've titled Built Together, where we're just walking through the book of Ephesians chapter by chapter, verse by verse, with really an eye towards the, I think, the main overarching theme or goal uh, that the Apostle Paul has for the church in Ephesus and also for us, which is that we are being built together in the person of Jesus, that we are united uh, to one another by faith in Christ. And, and that unity is something that we not only share, but we also experience this, um, this new family we've been born into, this new kingdom that we've been brought into by, by the Lord Christ. And so as we've explored that over the past several weeks, I want to kind of catch you up to, to, to where we are at this particular passage. The Apostle Paul uh, took 202 Greek words, verses 3 through, I think, 14, to talk about all of the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ. He says the word in Christ multiple times, and he continues to, to, to point to what God has done for us in Jesus. He, he chose us, the Father chose us before the foundation of the world to be adopted into Christ, to, uh, to, to have this new family that we experience together in the church. Uh, Paul talks about how we also have been welcomed into God's kingdom and we now have a new rule or a new way of life that, that we're inaugurated into by the person of Jesus. And we have this inheritance in Christ, these uh, untold spiritual blessings that are stored up for us in the heavenlies, he says. And so as we've kind of explored that over the past several weeks, we talked about the last time about how we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, how God placed his stamp on us. He gives us this assurance or this security that he's going to give us all that he has promised so that we can experience all that he, he has for us in Jesus. And, and then after Paul says that, he transitions quickly into the passage we're going to read this morning where uh, he, he talks to this church kind of as, as one who hasn't met all these people. These, these folks in Ephesus have come to faith. They're Jew and Gentile. They come from a, a vast array of backgrounds and former belief systems. And so Paul says, I've heard about your faith. I've heard that you've come to trust in Christ. And now I want to pray for you to give you the thing that you need to lay hold of what God has for you in Jesus. That's where we, we pick up here in verse 15, the thanksgiving and the prayer of Paul for the church in Ephesus. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is, na that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him uh, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. I've shared with y'all before, I grew up way out in the, the country in Oklahoma and um, several miles from civilization. So there wasn't a lot to do, especially in the summertime where I grew up because we were so remote, so removed from... <laughs> 
people. And so for me, once The Price is Right went off of TV, usually I think it was around 11 when it would end, Showcase Showdown would happen, then the long run of nothing to do would show up in my life. And so from 11 a.m. until, you know, bedtime, I was going to have to find a way to occupy my time. And for my sister and I, especially in the summer, one of the things we would do for fun was we would go check the mail. That's how boring it was where we lived. And we, we had a long, really long driveway, probably 100 or so yards long, into cattle guard at the end of our driveway. And so uh, it was sort of a, we had a, a system where we could, you know, determine who got to check the mail on which day so we wouldn't get in a fight. Um, and so, uh, you know, if it was, I think, Wednesday or Friday was my day, I got to check the mail. And so I would get to, get to hike down our long driveway, go grab something out of the mailbox, and then come back with, you know, whatever treasure I had discovered there. And so I distinctly remember probably first, second, third grade, somewhere in there, I was really young, going to the mail one day, opening up the mailbox and pulling out an envelope that had a window in it and what looked to be a real check for a million (laughs) dollars. And I was like, what just happened? Like our life just changed. Some of y'all remember the Publishers Clearinghouse? This is a mean, cruel joke to play on small children who checked the mail because they didn't know that that wasn't a real thing. And so I run back to my house. I sprint in, Mom, Mom, you're not going to believe it. We got a million dollars. And I show her the envelope, and she, of course, laughs at me. And she's like, yeah, that's not how that works, son. It's all a gimmick. It's all kind of a, uh, you know, a setup so that you'll subscribe to, to, to various magazines. And then, yeah, you may have a chance to win something, but I don't know of anyone who's ever actually won that before. And in that very moment, my hopes were dashed, and I realized it's a long time till Price is Right comes back on, and I can live vicariously through the dreams of someone who just won a, a brand new car. But I, I didn't know at the time that, you know, like you could, that, that, that was legal, that you could kind of bait and switch people that way. You could tell them that they had something, but there was always a catch to getting the thing. And that catch was you had to spend money to have a chance to get the thing. And what I love about what Paul says here to the church in Ephesus about uh, the blessings that we have in Christ is that there's no catch. There, there's, there's, there's no bait and switch. There's, there's, there's no hoop you have to jump through. He's going to talk about that a lot in the next chapter where he says it's by grace we are saved through faith, not by works. There's no catch. There's no strings attached to it. Everything that you need, you have in the person of Christ. In verse 3, when Paul says that we have been given in the Father through the Son, sealed by the Spirit, all the spiritual blessings that is needed for us to live this life, all that is needed for us to, to endure, all, all that, that, that needs to be experienced for us to, to have faith, to trust Him, to follow Him, to be made into the image and likeness of Jesus, this glorious inheritance that we have. There's no strings attached to it, Paul says. It's ours. It's, it's there for the taking. And what I love about the way Paul even frames this up is that it's independent of your circumstances. Remember, he's writing from prison. He's, he's awaiting most likely execution. And he has the gall to write a church in Ephesus and say, you know what? I am a blessed man. He, he, he comes to a place of, of abounding worship in, in the glory of who God is and what he's given him in Jesus. Despite his circumstances. Why? Because these spiritual blessings that are innumerable, the, the things that, that give, animate our lives in such a way so as to, to be what we were created to be and to do what we were called to do, that is ours. And we can lay hold of it even now. So here in verses 15 through 23, what we just read, I think Paul shows us how we access, 
how we, how we, we, we cash the check that God has given us, how we, we lay hold of the sweepstakes that he's abundantly poured out on us in the person of Jesus. What, what is it that, that we need? What is it that we do in order to, to experience this as God's people? If he's given us these blessings and they're, they're sitting in our account waiting to be cashed in, what, what do we do to go to the bank and make a withdrawal on them? How, how do we get, get, get that into our lives in an ever-increasing ongoing basis? Three things that I think Paul shows us here for the church in Ephesus that he, he at least points towards or, or specifically names here that, that, that are necessary for the people of God to experience all these spiritual blessings. The first one we see is there in verse 15. It's faith. How do we lay hold of the blessings that God has for us in Jesus? Quite simply, faith in him. Look back in verse 15, and let me show you where I got that. For this reason, Paul says, the reason that, that the Holy Spirit has sealed us, the reason that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of the possession of the inheritance of all the spiritual blessings that are needed. For this reason, Paul says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. For this reason, because I, I've heard that you've trusted in Christ. That's how I can say that these spiritual blessings are yours. Faith is then anchored in a person, Paul says. You have faith and it's in the person of Jesus. That, 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 that is how you are saved. That is how you are united to God. That is how you are reconciled to God. Faith is the access point to these spiritual blessings. And Paul says, I've heard about it. He hasn't seen it. He, hasn't, he doesn't have firsthand experience of it. We talked about this when we started the study of this letter. Paul's writing back to Ephesus, a church that he, he founded, but that he had to, had to leave because of persecution. And he goes to Rome where he's then arrested and he's awaiting trial. And he hears good news come to him that multiple people, Jew and Gentile, have come to faith in Christ. And God is doing something. So Paul writes back here and he says, look, I've heard of your faith. And I, I hear that you're trusting in Christ. And that's the, the entry point into this relationship with him, into these blessings that we have stored up for us in heaven. He, doesn't, he hasn't seen it. He hasn't, doesn't have firsthand knowledge of it, but he's heard about it. Some of y'all will maybe know this. We've, we've been working at Living Hope for a while with uh, Afghan refugees through, through a refugee resettlement program that we started through LH360. Uh, we also have a, a wing of, of ministry that we do in church planting where we're working with a church plant amongst that refugee population. Today, that church is going to baptize six new believers this afternoon. I don't, I don't know who they are. I haven't seen these people. I, I, I've only heard this. The word has come back to us via their pastor. This is going down today in one of our members' homes. They're going to be baptized in their swimming pool. Pray for them. That's got to be cold, but that's where they're being baptized today. And I, I, I see Paul read this. I read Paul uh, saying this to the church in Ephesus. I've heard about the faith that you have. And, and you can almost catch the excitement about how faith has opened up these people to, to access all that God would have for them now. And I'm like, yes, that's what God's doing that in our day. He's doing that through our church. And I, that, that is the thing that we're leaning into. That's what, that's what we pray for. That's what we long for. It's what we hope for. People to have faith in the Lord Jesus, to be rooted and anchored in him as a person. Just this last week, I got asked by one of our parishioners, how do you know that you're a Christian? I love that question. It's, it's, it's the, maybe the, the most important question any of us can ask. How do you know? How do you know that, that you belong to God? How do you know that these, these spiritual blessings and benefits are yours? By faith. Faith is active trust in the person of Jesus. It's, it's a turning from 
That's uh, what repentance is. It's changing your mind about what you think will save or deliver you. First and foremost, you. Like repentance is turning from me trying to be my own Lord and Savior. Me trying to work hard enough, to be smart enough, to accomplish enough things, to get enough good habits, to you know, kick the bad habits and turn over the new leaves. It's, it's, it's turning away from that whole idea. It's saying, I am physically, mentally, spiritually unable to save myself. So I'm going to trust in someone else and not an outside force or an unnamed God, not some other way of working my way into good favor with the, with the little G gods that I may believe in. But instead, I'm turning to the person of Christ, faith in him. I trust in him to save me, to rescue me, to make me whole, to make me new, to bring me back to God. Faith is the access point for for the church in Ephesus and for us about what it means to be a Christian. Faith is anchored in the person of Christ. That's what Paul says. I've heard about this. This has happened in your life. And then he says there's evidence of that, that that it has happened. So faith is anchored in a person, but Paul says faith is, is evidenced in love. Look at how he says it in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Now that word all is important. It's a word that Paul's going to use a lot, both at the end of this passage where he says that God fills all and is in all, that God has given all power to Jesus who was resurrected from the dead, because what Paul's leaning to, or what he's pointing us towards, is that all are included, Jew and Gentile, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, who is Lord over all, in all, and through all. And so Paul says one of the evidences of possessing saving faith is that, and one of the the ways that we see that we have these benefits that that he shored up for us in Jesus is that we love everyone. We love one another. We even love people we have nothing in common with. We love people that we don't share backgrounds with. We love people that have perhaps, you know, different beliefs and ideas. ...person of Jesus, that bond that we have in him through faith is solid. It is It is a foundation of gold, and because of that, we love all the saints. In other words, faith is always going to be evidenced in love for others. This is what Jesus said whenever he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The the vertical dimension that we have in our relationship with God is always going to be evidenced in the horizontal love that we show to other people, especially those for whom we have very little in common, especially those that we would otherwise be enemies with. That's how we see that we have been changed by faith in the person of Christ. We love others. We love all. And this is what James would say when he would write to the church in James chapter 2 and say, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we're saved by faith in the person of Jesus, but a saving faith that will access all of these benefits and blessings that we have in Christ shows itself in love for others shows itself in, as James says, love for the poor. As Paul says, love for the Jew or the Gentile. It shows itself whenever we look out for others. Say, I don't know if, I, if I'm experiencing every spiritual blessing. Give. Well, are you loving? Is love showing up in your life? Even to the people, the, the body of Christ, the church is not an ethereal concept. Look around. It's here. Do you love these people? It's a good test case. 
You have to see someone in the room for whom that you're extending yourself. You're, 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 you're initiating with them. You're pursuing them in faith, in love for the goodness of what God has for them in his kingdom. That's what Paul says it looks like to have faith in Jesus. If there's an absence of love for all the saints in your life, perhaps there's also an absence of faith. We come to trust Christ by faith and we come to love others as well in faith because we know that God has loved them just as he loved us. Secondly, I think the second thing that Paul shows us that the church in Ephesus needs to lay hold of if they're going to access these spiritual blessings that God has for them in the heavenlies is just simply this. It's prayer. Look at how Paul says it beginning in verse 16. So he says, I've heard of your your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul says, okay, uh, he's in prison. He's, he, he's you know, awaiting most likely execution. He gets word that these people back in Ephesus from all manner of backgrounds are coming to faith. Jew and Gentile come to trust in Jesus. And he says what happens then is his immediate response to their faith is, is to go to, to the Lord in prayer. He remembers them constantly in his prayers. And and what I love about that is that it shows that for for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus who wants to lay hold of the spiritual blessings that God has shored up for them, we realize that when we pray, God places us in in an immediate posture of dependence. Paul can't do anything about their situation in in the sense of going and and fixing any problem. He can't can't free himself from prison and go pastor them in a one-on-one sort of way. So what does he do? He prays. And his prayer life begins to be fostered in the state of dependence where he's admitting that these people need certain things. They need knowledge. They need wisdom. They need discernment. They need to experience God in some very specific ways. And so he prays on behalf of the church at Ephesus. He presses into their neediness through, through his prayer life. For you and me, if we want to lay hold to the, uh, of the, the, the myriad blessings that God has poured out in our life, then there's no better way to walk into that than to walk into that needy and dependent. And you do that by prayer. Prayer is, by definition, of, I believe, a resignation of our belief that we can save ourselves. It's turning to a power that is greater than us and saying, there are certain things in my life that I am powerless to overcome, that I can't seem to master or muster up the strength to beat in my own life. So God, I need you in these ways. And for Paul, he says, this church back in Ephesus, made up of Jew and Gentile, possibly or most likely experiencing some level of conflict. They're coming from a background of like occult worship. There's some, some crazy stuff going on. And so Paul says, I know how we can fix this problem. Let's get on our knees. Let's ask God to give them wisdom. Let's ask God to bring them together. Let's, let's allow the Lord to do what only the Lord can do. To call them to act upon their union with Jesus. To lean into his strength, his blessing, his grace. Prayer places us in a posture of dependence. And then secondly, I think prayer show, Paul shows us that prayer fosters gratitude in our hearts. Paul says, whenever I hear this about you, I don't cease to give thanks for you. So there's, there's like a, a, a three-way encounter between Paul and the church in Ephesus and God himself. And so when Paul gets word about the church, he goes to the Lord, thanking the Lord for what he's doing in the church. And this, this dance between what's happening on, on a horizontal plane between Paul and the church is, is leading to gratitude to the Lord for what the Lord can do in their lives and also dependence in Paul's own heart to do something in them because he can't physically do anything about it being in prison. And so it fosters 
gratitude. He says, I, I don't cease to give thanks for you in my prayer life. I believe Paul's prayer life was always rooted in thanksgiving and gratitude. If you go to virtually any letter that he writes in the New Testament, and in the closing, closing words, over and over and over again, he's going to mention people that he's thankful for. He's going to end with a prayer, thanking God for his grace and for his glory and the ways that he's shown up in his life. Prayer is, I believe, for a follower of Jesus, our access point to foster the sort of gratitude that's needed in our life to be thankful for the things that God has blessed us with. One of the reasons why we can't lay hold of the spiritual blessings that we have shored up for us is sometimes we're so fixated on our own problems, struggles, and turmoils that we don't stop to give God thanks for what he has given us, for how he has shown up in our life, for the things that he wants to do in and through the person of Christ for us. What if, what if, for instance, this week in your prayer life, you took the focus maybe perhaps off of your, your, your normal list of things that you're lifting up to the Lord and instead you started with gratitude and thanksgiving. And maybe you did an inventory this week of here's all the ways that the Lord has shown up in some way in my life. I mean, for me right now, just the sheer fact that it's not a thousand degrees outside, I'll start there. I am grateful to God that the leaves are changing colors and I don't immediately sweat when I walk out of my house. That's a gift. You can look at a number of things. You're, you're fed, you're clothed, you're alive. God's provided for you in your daily needs. He's showing up in some way in your heart and life. Have you, have you stopped to give him thanks? Because in giving thanks, gratitude begins to well up in our hearts and life. Prayer becomes the access point whereby we access all of these blessings that God has poured out on us. Because we begin to see them. When we focus on what he has provided, we can see the ways that he's already blessed us. And then third, I think that, that Paul's main emphasis in this prayer points to this idea of knowledge. The way that you and I access these myriad blessings that God has placed in our, in our hearts and lives, the way that we lay hold of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the way that we, we take hold of the, the inheritance that we have is through knowledge. Look, in, look back in verse 17. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, Paul says, I pray for you that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having, and this is such an incredible metaphor, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the worker of his, working of his great mind, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So Paul says, I'm praying for you to know something. That you may know something very specific. Now, before we could even start to kind of unpack that, we've got to talk about what he means by know. Because knowledge in our day and age is, uh, is a cheap commodity. It's something that we feel that we can get at any point in time. I can talk to my watch like Dick Tracy and it will tell me whatever I want to know, right? So for instance, like I could ask my watch right now if I wanted to, hey, what's the temperature outside? And it would say, it's currently whatever it is, 68 degrees. And um, and, and so I would, there's a way of knowing that it's just being informed. Like, I, okay, I now know that it's 68 degrees. I don't know why it's 68 degrees. I don't understand barometric pressure. I don't know what the jet stream does. Like, I'm meteorologi meteorologically inept. But, hey, so is the weatherman, right? He gets it wrong most of the time. So we're in the same boat. I don't understand it, but I know it, right? So there's a way of doing knowledge that's just you're informed. That's all it is. And then there's a way of doing knowledge that's understanding. We're like, oh, okay, I know why that is that way. I understand that. So 
you know, whether I was just uh, talking with some folks this week, Killers of the Flower Moon has come out, this new movie about some stuff that happened back in the day in Oklahoma. And I feel like a historian because folks will ask me about it. And I'm like, yeah, let me tell you about tribal relationships in the state of Oklahoma because that's my upbringing, right? And so I feel like I have some measure of understanding. I, the knowledge that I possess is based upon, you know, having been taught this stuff in schools. And so you go through Oklahoma history, you learn about things you don't learn when you grow up in maybe Tennessee or Mississippi, different sorts of histories there. But, but I understand it. Neither one of those is what Paul is talking about here when he's asking for the church to know these things. He doesn't want them to merely be informed, nor does he merely want them to understand. He wants them to know experientially, which is a different type of knowledge. Now, the Bible uses that word know in that way a lot. If you ever go back and read the old King James Version in the book of, of, of Genesis, it's going to tell you that so-and-so knew so-and-so and she bore a son. That's a different kind of knowledge, right? You know them, it says. In other words, there's an intimate encounter that leads to something. And, and so when the Bible's talking about knowledge, most of the time that's what it's talking about. Knowledge, not just information transfer, not just downloading the details. It's an experience of something. It's a, it's a firsthand knowledge that's experiential in nature. And so when Paul says here to the church in Ephesus, I want the eyes of your heart enlightened. Hearts don't have eyes. Hearts can't be enlightened. But what he's leaning into, this beautiful metaphor, is that he wants this affection experience, the experience at the level of the soul where we are aware of something about God that comes from the inside out. It's, it's why Christianity is not merely just a byproduct of knowing more stuff. Right, so I became a Christian when I was 17, a few months into being a follower of Jesus, the Sunday school teacher for the seventh grade boys in the church where I was a member, um, he resigned and, and bounced. Later, I found out why, because I was made the seventh grade boys Sunday school teacher. And I would go into this class and I would sit down with these eight or 10 kids that were raised in church. I, I'd been reading the Bible for all of, you know, six months maybe. And I, I would come in and sit down and I'd say, hey guys, today our study is we're talking about, you know, Daniel and the lion's den. And I would start reading names and these kids would correct me and say, I got the name wrong. I'm like, yeah, this is my first time I've read the story. But I would be super excited about what I'd read. And I would try to, you know, say, guys, can you believe that this happened? And, and I could tell that they were like, yeah. I learned this on a flannel graph in vacation Bible school two years ago. This is not exciting to me. But the, the difference was it wasn't that they lacked knowledge. It was the lack of the experience of that knowledge, the, the life-transforming, life-altering truth that was going to reshape the way you view the world. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He, when you lay hold of spiritual blessings, he says, I want you to know some things about God, not know them just in information download sense. Not just sit and study them so that you feel better about yourself and smarter. No, I want you to experience something by God himself through the work of his spirit. He lists out three things here. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's the three things Paul says. You want to you know what spiritual blessings you have short up for you? These are the things you need to know. And you don't need to know them like just understand them. You need to experience them. So Paul says, first off, you need to know the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. In other words, Paul prays that the church in Ephesus would not just understand that there's hope in the calling of Jesus on their lives, but that they would experience that hope. That 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 according to the rest of the letter that Paul's going to lay out, this is the, the entryway into following Jesus. 
knowing the hope that you have in him. Not just, again, understanding it, experiencing it. So for instance, in chapter 2, verse 12, we'll see this next week when we study that. Paul says that prior to coming to faith in Christ, you were without hope in the world. So prior to being, before you're a Christian, hope is at best fictitious and delusional. Whatever hope you have is manufactured and it's built upon something that will ultimately come crumbling down. But when you come to faith in Jesus, he says, hope then latches on to something that is un- eternal and unchanging. And so Paul says, to the extent that we understand that, we can also experience that. That it can actually change the, the, the eyes of our hearts can be open to see it and to know it. In ver- chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, there's one hope of our call. One thing that we're all looking to, together, towards, leaning into, that is that we will one day be with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And then Paul will go on to say, and we'll see this in the latter half of this letter, that that all of our lives is to be lived out of the reality of that hope. Your marriage, your kids, your work, your job, all of that flows out of knowing that we have an eternal hope. The way we treat one another, the way we interact with one another, the way we repent of our sins, the way we extend grace to each other, the way we forgive one another, even as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus, so also should we forgive one another. All of that is is bound up in our experience of this everlasting eternal hope that we have in Jesus. In other words, a man in prison who's awaiting death can tell a church, I still have hope, not hope of escape, not hope of deliverance. Hope of being made new and made whole. Hope that extends beyond this life. Hope that that is is found in Christ, that that goes beyond my present circumstances, Paul is saying. He says, I I pray that you would experience that as well. Now, some of y'all limped in here today. And maybe you came in today thinking, my hope has run radically thin lately. I, I feel like it's drying up and withering in my own heart and life. Paul says, pray about that. And he even says, I'm praying for you about that. I'm praying for you as a pastor about that, that, that the hope that you have, the hope of the call that you have in Christ, that you will one day be glorified, that your body of pain will be thrown off, that everything that was sad will become untrue, that sin will be no more. I pray that you can get a taste of that today. You can look out into an eternal future where that is real because it is. And Christ is coming for us. The second thing Paul says is that you would know the riches of his inheritance. You would know the riches of his inheritance, of his inheritance. I love that he he words it like that. So Jesus has won for us full rights into and access into what God has for us for all of eternity. Just this last week, I was uh, working with someone in, in a school project, and they were talking about a particular uh, case they were dealing with, with, with a family where um, the, the lady had been named the executor of her mother's estate. There's three kids in the family, two full siblings and one half sibling. And she was explaining to me and the other person in the room that, yeah, the problem here is that mom actually set up the will to where the full siblings get full shares, but the half sibling only gets half. She's like, I don't know what to do with this. And I got to thinking about it because I've been reading this passage in preparation for today. And I love the fact that Jesus gives full shares to everyone. And there's no qualifications. There's no like, ah, you didn't come to faith until you were this age. Or you didn't really get that problem worked out in your life. Or maybe you never got to see or taste this on this side of heaven. No, everyone gets full inheritance. Jew and Gentile. Male and female. Slave or free. 
Those who, who come to faith young and those who come to faith old. The thief on the cross got full access and, and, and full head rights as a, as a, as a child. He got, he got full inheritance from Jesus himself. Think about that. And Paul says to the church in Ephesus, what I want you to experience in these blessings is the riches of that inheritance. Paul prays that you would see how amazing that is, that you were given all the rights of a, of a child who was born into this family. As John would say in John's gospel, not by the will of man, not by works, but by God. God's done this in you. And then lastly, Paul says, he prays that you would know the greatness of his power. Now, I love whenever there's stuff included in the Bible that kind of doesn't make logical sense. Um, it's usually cluing us into something that Paul's trying to explain something that really can't, our tiny brains can't wrap around. He says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. How can you know something that's immeasurable? Think about that. And Paul's basically saying, you, you can't, but you can. Like you can't go back to the different ways of knowledge. You can be informed about it, but you can't understand it. We don't really know what all powerful looks like, means, or feels. Like we don't, we can't. If we could, then, then, then the finite has become infinite and we're God. But we can't. But Paul says, but, but you can know it. Like you can know it. Like you can experience the, the power of God in your life in a very real way. So where do you need that today? Where do you need God's power to show up? Is it in your faith? Maybe your faith's waning. Maybe today's the day where the Spirit peaks once again in your heart and provokes you in some way to say, no, I need to trust in these ways. I need to, to lean into God on these things. I need to bring these things to the Lord in prayer. Maybe it's for healing. Maybe you've given up hope. Maybe you're in a place of grief or sorrow that you feel like the, the light's never going to come back on. The sun's never going to rise again. But today the Spirit once again provokes you and says, no, there is immeasurable power that is available to you. And you can know it. You can't understand it, but you can know it. You can experience it even now and even today. So, Father, that's my prayer for us as well this morning, that we would know the hope of our calling, that we would be enlivened to it once again, that despite whatever circumstances, failings, or uh, misgivings that we have going on in our current life, that we would be able to see beyond that to the hope that we have in Jesus, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God, I pray that we could see the riches of your inheritance that you've given to us in the person of Christ as well. That we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's no persecution, famine, nakedness, or sword that can separate us from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, would you once again, by your, your, your Holy Spirit, bring power into our lives. That we could experience that. In our battle with sin, in our battle to believe, in our way of extending love and grace and mercy to our neighbors, especially those for whom we have strong disagreements, Lord, let us experience your power that motivates and captivates us in a new way. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord, through whom we have access to all of this stuff. Amen.